Good morning, gentlemen. I understand that my former friend, and the operative word is former, uh, our speaker last week, uh, took some pot shots at me. And I want you to know he's, he's toast. I'm, I'm doing a men's retreat for his church this spring, and he's, he's going to get it, really going to get it. Well, listen, on this icy morning, we're so glad you're able to get up and come out. And apparently you survived. Maybe a few didn't, but we'll see them next week, maybe on crutches. Uh, be careful out there today. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And we had just completed a text which taught us how to suffer in this world against the, the onslaught of another lifestyle and how we're to respond to it. And we're not to respond with debauchery and lust and drunkenness, but we're to surprise those around us by not plunging into the same flood of dissipation uh, that, uh, in which they're engaged. And we're told that they'll be surprised by that and they may even heap abuse on us. But down deep underneath, they'll notice there's something different about you uh, because you are conforming your life to that of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we were told in verse 6 that for this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So even though our outer nature is wasting away, and our bodies are under judgment because all has fallen under the judgment of sin, our spirits are being renewed. And uh, we are living in God according to our spirits. So Peter had mentioned the final things to come. And he picks up on that theme with verse 7 and shows us rather than living in debauchery, rather than just living like everybody else around us, if we believe in the, in the day to come, what kind of life ought we to live? And let's pick up with the story then with verses 7 through 11 this morning. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, we want to notice several things this morning, three primary things in this text. The first one is in the first half of verse 7, in which we discover again we live in the last day. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. We really make two mistakes in our culture. One is to try to ignore the, the end of things altogether. There's a book written by Christopher Lash, whose title I don't remember. But he spoke about the secular world displacing the idea of judgment with the, quote, myth of progress. And that is that we think of things getting better in this world. And that's sort of a displaced Christian hope. If you leave the Christian hope that this is all going to melt down and be replaced by new heavens and a new earth, you've got to make the best of it. 
And that is that, you know, with scientific progress and world travel and communications and medical science and all these things, things are actually getting better and we're progressing toward the great, the great day uh, when may, maybe nobody will ever have to die. But then what are you going to do because they'll be overpopulated? I mean, you know, there's, there's no solution to this. But we tend to replace the Christian hope in this world with this sort of secularized hope. That's one way in which we work. And the other is that uh, we get hysterical about it. You know, we have people walking around with signs, the end is near, and, you know, uh, have people who, who uh, stop working hard on their jobs because, you know, Jesus is supposed to come back this year or the next year. I remember one time I was preaching a conference in, in, a, in, in another country, and uh, one of the uh, European missionaries came up to me and said, you know, next year is the year when, when Jesus is going to come back. This was 1987, and he was sure that 1988 was it because the nation of Jerusalem was reestablished in 1948, and then, you know, somewhere you know, Jesus said that within a generation the end would come, and a generation is 40 years, and so he had it all figured out. And he had little brochures that his favorite radio preacher uh, had put out that had it all lined up. It was 1948, and I handed it back to him, and I said, you know, how many times have we said Jesus is coming back, you know, William Miller and the whole Seventh-day Adventist movement was, it was going to happen in 1812, you know, he was going to come back. And uh, we've had all these predictions and no one knows when it's going to be. Uh, so the other end of it is we, we get all wired up and, and uh, we think that we know when the end is coming. And Jesus said no one know, knows, not even the Son, only a Father knows the timing. And the timing is not for us to know. Uh, but here's what we do know. The end is near. And you say, well, it's been 2,000 years already since the coming of Christ. Yes, and as we're going to discover in Second Peter chapter 3, a 1,000 years is but a day in the, in the sight of the Lord. So what is a 1,000 years when you compare that to eternity? So what the Bible's teaching us that we're right on the cusp, we're right on the, we're right on the edge, right on the verge of the end coming, and we're to live like it. Now, this was inaugurated by Jesus' first coming. And, for example, you might look at 1 Corinthians 10 and just catch a whiff of this almost as the Apostle Paul is breathing by other things. He says in 1 Corinthians 10:11, These things happened to them, that is, in the wilderness, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Paul says the Old Testament was written for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So this is a new age. It's something very special that has come upon us as a result of the coming of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, you have that God, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke to us at various times in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he says, he has spoken to us through his Son. So when the Son came to speak to us, the fulfillment of the ages has come upon us. So the age, the old age is passing away. The new age is dawning. So we're caught in between the ages. We're still experiencing the old age and the new age has already started to dawn like the sun coming up in the morning. You can begin to see it coming. And then the night is over. The day is almost here, says the Apostle Paul. So that's the nature of the age in which we live, inaugurated by Jesus' first coming. So when he came, the age was, was uh, dawning upon us. For example... You remember at Pentecost, uh, when the tongues of fire were on, on the men's heads, everybody said, what is going on here? They spoke in, in foreign languages, 
and people thought they were drunk. Peter said, no, they're not drunk. Uh, they're, they're not Presbyterians. Uh, these, these are Baptists. Let me tell you about these people. He said, they're not drunk. He said, rather, here's what has happened. The one whom you crucified, God has raised and made him both Lord and Christ. Of course, everybody goes, whoops, blew that one. And God has exalted him to the right hand of the Father. Now, that's the first part of the interpretation. The second part of it, Peter said, is that he and the Father have poured out what you now see and hear. And this is fulfilling, Peter uh, Peter said, this is fulfilling what Joel the prophet prophesied, that in the last days the Spirit will fall upon all flesh. So there was an interpretation given of that event. These are the last days about which the prophet spoke as a result of the exaltation of Jesus. So the crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus Christ inaugurated what we know as the last days, and we're living in them right now. These are the last days. And then these days are consummated soon. And you find this a common theme. I've listed, listed several passages there that where different writers in the New Testament will often speak about the return of Jesus Christ soon. And I don't know when they thought exactly. Uh, once again, they didn't say because they didn't know and they knew they weren't supposed to know. They recorded the words of Jesus that told us we wouldn't know. But they lived with an air of expectancy. And so ought we to do so because he could return at any moment and we could die at any moment. And either one of those moments, we're going to meet Jesus Christ. So we're, we're living with a sense of, of comfort and ease and rest because we know that this universe is working in our favor and that the return of Christ is going to be the most joyous moment in our entire lives. On the other hand, we live with a sense of eagerness, anticipation. We're awake and aroused and arrested because we know that it could be at any moment and we're to be ready. That's the kind of status, eschatological status of the Christian. We're aware of these things and we live in light of them. That's what Peter is reminding us of. He's just talking about judgment and he's saying these things are near to come. The great Jonathan Edwards, who, who I think undoubtedly was the greatest philosopher who, who ever lived in the on American soil uh, and one of our greatest theologians, uh, Edwards, when he was 19 years old, wrote uh, some famous resolutions. People forget that he was so young. Actually, he was 18. When he was 18 years old, he wrote resolutions. He said, if Jesus Christ were to return tonight, uh, I want to live in this way. And he wrote these resolutions out. Here is a young man who is living in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ought we to do the same. Now, if that's the case, how ought we to live? Peter goes right in to show us this. Are we going to be a uh, men who say, well, you know, if Jesus is coming back, I'm not going to worry about reconciling this relationship or finishing that business deal or, you know, planting my garden? No, no, no. You'll find that the Christian is the most practical of people. We live with this real sense of eagerness and expectation about the new age dawning upon us, and yet we're the most practical of people. Notice what he says. Really, there are two things. that We have, we have obligations. We have obligations to God and obligations to neighbor. He's saying, therefore, that is, if we're living in light of these things, there is a practical implication of this. There is a way in which we are supposed to live. And you'll find often in the New Testament that Jesus and the apostles are teaching us how we ought to live with this mindset about the time in which we live. So, first of all, with respect to God, we are to be prayerful. He says, 
in verse 7, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So that you can pray. Prayer, number one, requires a clear mind. A clear mind. Uh, This is uh, the same word that's used for the gathering demoniac in Mark chapter 15. This wild and crazy man wearing no clothes, chains falling off his arms and hands because he was so strong that chains couldn't bind him. He was full of 600 demons. I'm sorry, 6,000 demons. He was beating people up. And when he got tired of beating them up, he beat himself up. This man was crazy. He was wild. He was a terror to the entire community. He was a terrorist. And Jesus cast out the demons in this man. And you remember that when the demons were cast out, he was clothed in his right mind, that's the phrase, and seated at the feet of Jesus. What a picture of sanity. What a picture of freedom, finally. On one hand, it looked as though he was free before, but it really wasn't. He was bound to 6,000 demons. He could do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it, but he was in total spiritual slavery. Now, for the first time, he's free. And what does a free man do? He's clothed. That is, he maintains his human dignity and he carries the conventions of his own day, not scandalizing people around him. He's clothed. He is in his right mind. He has a clear mind and he is seated at the feet of Jesus Christ. There's the picture of freedom and picture of sanity. And that's the way we're to be. We can't pray otherwise unless we have a clear mind and our mind is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Prayer requires self-control. This word self-control is often used in the Scriptures for the word sober. Speaking of uh, alcohol, be sober or realistic. And you'll find that Peter uses this on two other occasions in, in this first epistle. It's obviously a theme. And he's saying to us that we have to be sober, watchful. You'll get that in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus is teaching us to be watchful. Be on guard. Be alert. Be sober. You wonder, why shouldn't I over-drink? Because you always want to be sober and able to pray. What if you're at a cocktail party, you've had a, you know, one too many, and you can't even listen to the person next to you who's suffering, whose marriage is falling apart, because your mind is blurred, and you're just into your own sensation of euphoria, and you're not even prepared to pray for something very important that comes to you that night. You're not able to engage it. You're not able to make observations and draw conclusions that will allow you to know how to help that person. You just become a party animal. And Peter is saying, no, you live with a different perspective. You know that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. The end is near, and you're living with a sense of anticipation and responsibility toward it. And if the end is near and the judgment is coming, we have an obligation to to the Lord, to expand His kingdom and to help other people enter the kingdom. So we're ready, we're prepared, we're clear-minded, we're sober. This is what uh, Peter is saying. And so often, you know, when we think about our prayer lives, uh, you know, I'll find signs around here in front of various churches, you know, come, we're going to have this spiritual experience. We're going to, you know, walk around the maze and contemplate and do all this. And prayer is a wonderful spiritual experience. And Well, prayer is a wonderful spiritual experience. But I want you to notice that in the Apostles' Language Prayer is not so that you'll have a wonderful spiritual experience. Prayer is a supply line to the Lord. It's calling back to headquarters saying, help. 
Send the reserves. Advance the kingdom. I'm facing opposition. I'm facing problems. I see needs. Lord, help and bring reserves and resources into this situation uh, to advance your kingdom here and to change this life here. Prayer is a, is a request for help. It's not primarily so that you'll feel better about yourself or to relieve your guilt because you hadn't prayed enough the past week. Maybe I'll pray twice as much this morning or I'll pray until I have that sensation of being close to the Lord. Well, all those things are wonderful gifts that come to us through prayer. I don't deny any of them. In fact, I welcome them all. I seek them. But I primarily seek to be an instrument of God's peace in our, in our society by being a man of prayer. That's, that's our calling. So if we believe in the nearness of the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to find ourselves very watchful, clear-headed, sober, realistic, because we want to be prayerful. So this is the first obligation of one who believes in the nearness of the things to come. But secondly, notice with verse 8 through 11 that he says, above all, above all, love each other deeply. Isn't it amazing? He's saying that if I could just give you one thing to do, to live out what it means to be a man of, of the new age, is to love each other deeply. Uh, and this word deeply could also be translated, maybe ought to be translated constantly. Be constant in your love. Don't ever give up in your love for the brothers. And there are a lot of reasons why you'd want to give up in your love for the brothers. How many times have you been disappointed by somebody around you? How many times have people sinned against you and they didn't even, they didn't even bother to ask for forgiveness? How many times have people slandered you? Talk behind your back. How many times have people failed to support you when you really needed them? How many times has someone had a great opportunity to show sympathy towards you and they just made a joke of you? How many times have those kinds of things happened and you've been tempted? Just forget it. You know, I'm not going to mess with that anymore. I'm not going to share my heart anymore. I'm not going to let people know me anymore. I'm going to protect myself uh, because uh, you're giving up. And what the, what the Apostle Peter says is above everything else in this age, you must love one another constantly. And, you know, I think about the, the problems that we have here in Memphis, whether it's uh, socioeconomic with some people who are privileged and some people who are, who are not so privileged. And how the people who are privileged are not sharing their power and the resources with those who are not so privileged. Or you can take the uh, Hispanic immigrants in our city. And for some folks in this town, all they want is for those uh, undocumented workers simply to leave. Just get out of here and go back to Mexico. And that's about all we have to say about it. Rather than to think, you know, what are the needs of of a family that's displaced and has no legal access to the rights and privileges of citizenship in this country. What must their needs be? They're massive. And they are human beings just like we are, and they're trying to provide for their families just like we are. And if you are the only person in this room who's never broken a law, I'd like for you to stand up, and we we all want to give you an ovation. Everybody here is uh, illegal in some way. And every one of us also, looking around here, we're immigrants. Some of you came because you wanted to, and some of you came because you didn't want to. Uh, but you were an immigrant nonetheless, every one of us. And uh, so often, that's the, w- that's the way that we look at people. It creates tension in the community. And, you know, you just sometimes uh, Hispanics just want to give up and just have their own little Hispanic clan. How often have the African-Americans been tempted to think the same way? 
No, you know, for centuries, you know, I had no access to power. And even today, sometimes being marginalized, they just want to give up. Sometimes you want to give up. Somebody at work that shunned you or spurned you or embarrassed you in some way. And Peter is saying, above all, love each other constantly. Don't give up. Love each other deeply. You may be looking at this and saying, you know, if we believe that Jesus Christ were coming back tonight, surely something more heroic than just being prayerful and loving one another deeply would be called for. But I want you to notice it. No, not really. If, we're, if Jesus Christ is coming tonight, what do you do? You know, Martin Luther was asked that question. He said, if Jesus Christ is coming back tonight, Mr. Luther, what would you do? And he said, plant a tree and pay taxes. <laughs> that is, go about your life. Live it to the full. And be one who is advancing the kingdom of God. Going, You know, when he comes back, let him find us simply at work as the, the sons of God. That's the point. So love one another deeply. Now, as we look at this, could we look at three aspects of this love? And Peter gives it to us here. How are we to love each other? Well, it could be described in a number of ways, but Peter does a wonderful job of laying out some ways in which we can love one another constantly. First of all, number one, cover each other's sins. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, some have wondered about the interpretation of this text. Is Peter saying, love one another deeply because if you love someone else deeply, it covers over a whole bunch of your sins. Some may even have, have speculated, does he mean that you can somehow pay, you know, for the failure of your own sins, just cover them up by loving other people. But uh, I have to say, grammatically, that would be a possibility. But I don't think it's really what the Apostle Peter is saying. And the reason I say this, if you'll take your Bible and turn back to Proverbs, and let's see where Peter gets this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. This is on page 990, 991 in the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. And let's see how Solomon puts it here. Solomon says in Proverbs 10:12, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Okay, so as the Proverbs go, they either work by repetition or by contrast. And here we're working by contrast. Hatred stirs up dissension among the people that we're hating. But love covers over all wrongs. So if you use the parallel, hatred is stirring up dissension among people. In this case, our love is covering up wrongs among the people. So it seems to me that Solomon is clearly saying here that he's talking about the wrongs of the people that we're loving are being covered. Take a look at another example in Proverbs. In Proverbs 17, verse 9. Here Solomon says, he who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Ah, now we're even getting a little more fine-tuned here. He's saying that, that we can, uh, if we cover an offense, we promote love. You see the parallel? 
Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers an offense, and that does promote love. And the and you can see from uh, verse nine, the opposite would be that we repeat a matter that separates close friends. And I want to say as we talk about this, and you can turn back to First Peter now. Uh, this is an area in my life where I need to grow. Uh, you know, we all find things funny. You know, when they're about somebody else, we can all be critical and analytical to the nth degree when it involves somebody else. And we usually don't use that same apparatus against our own selves or we don't appreciate it when somebody does it with us. But what's being said here is that, you know, if something's done to you or that you've noticed, here's what real love for the brothers does. It just, love just covers it up. Now, obviously, if it's a sin in a brother that needs to be confronted for his own sake, or if he has wounded someone else, which has created dissension, then, of course, you enter into it and you confront it and you try to bring reconciliation between man and God and between two men. So this is in no way diminishing that reality, that we have an obligation to not only to love one another, but to create harmony among the brotherhood. But if it's a sin against you, if it's an annoyance or irritation against you, or if you observe some little quirky thing in somebody, Love just covers it up. And I think about in my early experience uh, uh, as a, a pastoral intern, and I look back on that you know, 30 years ago and think of the dumb, ridiculous things that I did that, that must have made the senior minister just scratch his head and feel like this guy is crazy. And you say things, you know, you think you, think you know uh, how things are supposed to operate. And, you, and I can even remember making fun of him. We were good friends. Making fun of him about some little things he did. And now I find myself doing the same doggone things. Uh, because I understand them better now. Uh, and yet I found in him continually covering over my sins. He would just almost laugh it off. He just loved me. And let me be who I was. A young intern. And you, all of you have had experiences like that. How about let's be that way. To the other people. You know, whatever we've experienced where we really appreciated having someone just cover up all of our bad stuff, not repeating it out there, not undermining our reputations, just loving us like, like a good mother. Uh, that's what Peter is saying, that love covers the sins of other people. And you'll find in 1 Corinthians 13, for example, 13.5, where Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. How about in your marriage? How often we just go through the list of grievances in our minds, the things that are irritating us. How about just take the love of Christ and just cover it? Just like His love has just covered yours. And that's what Peter is saying. He's pleading with us, above all, cover each other's sins. Then notice secondly, that he says we are to offer hospitality. Offer hospitality. The word hospitality is a word which means literally lover of strangers. It's interesting that he says offer hospitality to one another. You say, well, how would they be strangers with one another? Well, here's how. That you have new people come among you all the time in your churches, in your small group perhaps, in your business. You have new people come all the time. And he's saying offer love of strangers to everybody continually. Don't give up. 
And when I think about what God used to lead me to himself, it was one person after another who offered hospitality to me. And you've heard me tell parts of my story from time to time, but I just look back on that first experience when I was converted as a young adult, and it was one person after another. One person took us into their home to have lunch. Shortly, it was the second Sunday we'd even arrived at this church. Another person uh, decides to babysit. This is an older person. Just decides to take our children under wing and then become surrogate grandparents. Just an amazing thing. And, of course, when we would, uh, every Halloween, we would dress up our little children and just go to these older members in our church who who loved our kids. Those were our Halloween visits because they developed such a relationship with them. They'd open their homes to us shared their love with us, let us enter into their family life, get to know their family, then we get to know our family. And Peter is saying, above all, offer hospitality to each other. Continue to open your home. And uh, in our age, we become so wealthy and then so afraid we're going to lose our wealth that we put up these high fences with gates and we've kept, you know, we're, we're concentrating on keeping people out and restoring our privacy and our protecting of our property and all the rest, and we've closed ourselves down to opening our homes to other people. Uh, We ought to be people who are offering hospitality above all, he says. Now, you understand, in the apostolic age, this was the only way that the gospel was going to be spread, was because when the apostles went from place to place and the Christians traveled from place to place, the inns were notoriously uh, uh, disreputable. And uh, so the Christians couldn't even stay there. So the apostles were saying, open up your homes around the world to each other. There's nothing more beautiful than that. And I find in traveling some other cultures, whether it's the Middle East or Africa, Asia, that most places there is a deep and rich uh, tradition of hospitality. The most sinful thing you could do in the Arab culture is not to open your tent uh, to someone who is in need. And there are these all, all, the, all kinds of rules. You know, you, someone's to be able to stay with you for three days without you asking one question about them, about who they are, where they came from, are they running from the law, anything else. There are different traditions. There's so many days you go without ha- asking any personal questions, and then you go a few more days and you can ask a few questions. And we don't have that kind of understanding, but how often is it that people will come to Memphis and say, boy, the, the hospitality is just wonderful. And it speaks of our city. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that the hospitality here is wonderful is a vestige of the gospel itself. Because the gospel is a hospitality gospel. And it opens our hearts and homes toward other people. And Peter is saying, don't lose that. If you lose that, you're losing the number one sign of the gospel. Jesus said, everyone will know that you're my disciples. How? That you love one another. That you practice hospitality toward one another. And then notice in, in that sense we are to offer hospitality without grumbling. <laughs> you lose all your credit when you say, you know, old so-and-so came through here for two days, messed up my house, cost me a hundred extra dollars of food, and wouldn't, you know, clean up behind himself. It was just, you know, all right. But, I, you know, I wanted to be hospitable. <laughs> well, hospitable like a pagan, not hospitable like a Christian. It reminds me of... The first church I served, there was one of our deacons who was in charge of kind of shutting the church up, you know, shutting it down after everybody went home for worship, from worship. And he'd go through the church and he'd close every window, turn off every light, uh, turn down the furnace, 
you know, all these things. Every Sunday, he and I were always the last ones to leave the building. Every Sunday, here's what he'd say. I can't believe nobody around here knows how to close windows. I can't believe they just leave these lights on everywhere. These people, every Sunday. Which is to say, aren't I wonderful? I know how to close windows and turn off lights. And here's what Peter says. Above all, love one another deeply by practicing hospitality without grumbling. As soon as you start grumbling, you're outside of the will of Christ. As soon as you start grumbling, you've lost the sign on your life that Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus did not grumble about dying for you. He cried about it. He sweat blood over it. He even asked the Father if there was any other way. But He never grumbled about dying for you and me. That's the reason we must practice hospitality in a particular way. Then thirdly, notice that He gets into the whole idea of spiritual gifts. In verse 10, He says, here's how you're to love one another deeply. Each one of you should use whatever charisma or charismata, the gifts, he has received to serve others. Now, let's look for just a moment at what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. And you can pick this up particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And here's, here are the kinds of things you'll see. Let me just mention three important principles. Number one, you'll find in the Scriptures... Every believer is gifted. Every believer has a charisma. You say, I'm not very charismatic. Oh, yeah, you are. If you're a Christian, you are charismatic. It's, uh, it's not appropriate for one group of the church to take that name and ascribe it only to themselves. Uh, it's not just people who speak in, in other tongues who are charismatics. No, it's Christians who are charismatics. And everyone who comes to Jesus Christ is gifted. When he went into heaven, he took captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. So like a conquering hero, he's on his way to heaven and he pours out gifts to all the citizens of the city that he conquered. And we're in that city and he's poured out gifts to us. He's lavished us with his, his victorious gifts. And these are the gifts. Uh, they're gifts of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, notice that Christ apportions the gifts. And... Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, you probably get one of the more explicit uh, descriptions of it. And I find this truth to be extremely important because sometimes we think we're inferior because we don't have certain gifts. But in 1 Corinthians 12:7, Paul says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So it is given to us. And Christ apportions it. The Spirit gives it to us. So the gifts are sovereignly given by Christ. And sometimes, you, you know, you, you've heard others say, well, you know, if you just believed a little stronger, you could speak in tongues. If you just believed a little stronger, you could be a good administrator. If you just believed a little stronger, you could be a preacher. Not necessarily. The gifts are given sovereignly by God. He gives you what he wants you to have in terms of spiritual gifts and abilities. Thirdly, Notice that our gifts are used to edify the body. Once again, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. These gifts are given for the common good. And this is enormously important because so often people take pride in their gifts. 
And once again, we've seen in recent years in the church how folks will take pride in their ability to speak in tongues or to interpret tongues. It's usually some demonstrative gifts. Sometimes people will take pride in their gift of preaching or teaching. Some of you are teachers, and you know you're pretty good at it, and you can take pride in that. And uh, we forget that all that you have, everything that you have was given to you. Why should you boast in something that's not yours? It was given to you as a gift. It's somebody else's, but it was given to you. So if you want to boast, boast in Christ. He's the one who gave you the gift. And I look in this room, and I know a lot of you, I'm just looking at a multitude of spiritual gifts. And you can look in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4 here, and, uh, and Romans 12. And in those four places, you will find uh, lists of gifts. And if you add them all up and eliminate the repetition, you'll probably come up with 21, 22 different gifts that are mentioned. But brothers, these aren't meant to be exhaustive lists. I mean, there, there are other gifts. But they range from being able to administer to, uh, you know, as a business administrator, to someone who is a helper, to someone who has the gift of mercy to care for people who need compassion, to those who lead, the gift of leadership, uh, actually the gift of stewardship, uh, the gift of teaching, the gift of pastoring, caring for people, all kinds of gifts that are there. But the purpose of all of them is not so that you're self-actualized or so that you increase your self-esteem or that you somehow kind of find your place in the body and feel welcomed because your gifts are being used. And I find so often people will complain that they're not being used in this way or the other because they want to use their gifts. That's not the purpose of having a gift is for you just to use your gift so that you feel part of the body. And so that you're welcomed and you can include yourself and have self-esteem. That's not the purpose of gifts. The gifts are for the purpose of building everybody else up. And so if I'm just babbling on, I can, I can boast and say, look what the Lord's given me, this angelic language. I can just pray in another tongue that you don't recognize. You're saying, yeah, you're right. I don't recognize it at all. It's not doing me any good. Well, it may do me some good in my private prayer time, but it's not doing you any good if I lead in prayer or speak in tongues. Because you don't understand what I'm saying. So it doesn't edify you at all. And the purpose of gifts are to build the brothers and sisters up. So you are looking for ways to take what God has given you to use it to build other people up. So if God has given you a gift, and He has, if you're in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. Your task is not only to find them, but it's to, to use them to build other people up. And the way to find out what you've got is just... Just start serving Him and serving others. And you'll eventually find out where you're producing fruit. So if, you want to, if I want to know, Sandy Wilson, how are you gifted? I just say, well, I've done several things in my life. I've tried to serve the church by doing this, 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 and this. And what I find is that I think I'm more help to other people if I do this, this, and this. And this, this, and this, not so much so. There are other people who are so much better at that than I am. And I just don't seem to have much power, spiritual power in those gifts. It just I don't seem to be producing much fruit. So what you look for is fruit. Those of you who uh, loved your previous pastor at First Evan, Ronnie Stevens, you had a pastor who knew, actually, that he produced more fruit in Central Europe than he did here. And his particular preaching gift, for some reason, bears tremendous fruit in Central Europe. 
And Ronnie doesn't know why. He and I speculated about it a little bit. But he knew that he bore fruit there. So it was his obligation eventually to go back to where he knows he bears fruit. And you know what? It's your obligation to position yourself and deploy yourself in the way in which you're bearing the most fruit for the kingdom of God. Every single one of us. So just simply serve other people in a variety of ways. And as you get older, you'll find out how God is pleased to use you in ways that sometimes mystify you. If, 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 I, were to, if I were to measure the gift of speaking, for example, in my life, by the first time I ever spoke, I'd never open my mouth in public again. It was a horrible, humiliating experience for me, and I'm sure it was atrocious for those who heard me. I, I just swore I'd never do it again, and I broke an oath when I, when I started preaching because I just, I, it was such a bad experience. But, you know, you try everything more than once, usually. And I thought, well, lo and behold, I was working with the junior highs, and I, I started to connect with them. And then I started working with young adults, and then I started to branch out a little bit. You know what? I realized, well, maybe I did have a gift, but it was just so hidden. <laughs> you know, it took some work to bring it out. That's fine. So it doesn't, it doesn't happen miraculously in a moment. It takes time. And so let yourself grow up. And meanwhile, just serve people because the purpose of all the gifts, even if you're not doing it really well, is to serve other people. You're looking for fruitfulness in their lives as a result of your efforts. Now, what Peter is saying, first of all, about our gifts, is that our gifts administer his grace. This is an amazing statement. He is saying that we are in some ways stewards of grace. Now, we know during stewardship season in all of our churches, we know what stewardship is, man. That's giving the money. Well, to be a steward is just to be a manager. So actually, a financial steward is one who's managing all of his finances, not just giving to the church, but you're stewarding everything. But here, Peter is talking about stewarding grace, not your grace, God's grace. So just as God has given you money and you're to manage it, God has given you grace that's flowing through your life and you're to manage that. Amazing statement. So what you take is God's love and grace towards you and you're figuring out how you're going to get it out and administer it to other people. And the avenues through which you do that are God's gifts that He's given you. And that's the reason it's so important to exercise the gifts He's given you because that's the way that people are going to experience God's grace through your life. And they do. And before anyone ever explained to me in clear tones the history of redemption and the accomplishments of Christ on the cross for me, I experienced God's grace as men loved me and served me and sought to edify me. I experienced it. I tasted it. I couldn't describe it, but I tasted it. And you know how it is. If you're not a cook, you don't even know what the ingredients are. All you do is say, hey, that's good. I'm coming back to this place and I'm going to order the same thing on that menu next time. I don't know what it has in it because I don't know. I don't understand spices, but I just know that was good and I'd like some more of it. And that's the way it was with me. Because men were using their spiritual gifts to administer and steward God's grace toward this slob who didn't know much about it. But boy, I tasted it and I wanted more of it. And then I wanted to understand it because I wanted to be a cook in the kitchen myself. So I learned the spices. I want to cook that food myself for other people who will say, you know what? I don't know what that was, but that tasted good. I want some more of that. Great. And how do they get it? Through men who are using what God has given them. And oftentimes 
We spend so much of our time and our energy saying, oh, I wish I had this gift. I wish I had that gift. Why don't you just take the one you got? Take the instrument God has given you and play it. If you can play the violin, it's a beautiful instrument. Why worry about the trombone? If you can play the oboe, don't worry about the trumpet. Play the oboe. Play the instrument you've got and play it to the max. And God's grace is demonstrated in that oboe just like it is in the violin. And God's grace is demonstrated when you're in the kitchen cooking food for the brothers just as much as the preacher who stands up and teaches the lesson. Just as much, if not more, because Paul says we should honor the hidden parts of the body even more than those who stand out up front. So for all the compliments that we give our preachers, and we all, all the preachers here, thank you for them. They're encouraging. We really appreciate it. You know what? Find the one who's doing the least hidden service somewhere. The sound guy up in the booth that nobody notices. The guy who sweeps the floor. And you just write him a note of thanks for everything that he does every Sunday to make, that, make your church a great place. Do the same thing in your work, in your business. Instead of spending most of your time complimenting people who get complimented all the time, why don't you find the person who really should be complimented who probably hears the least? So God's grace is administered through every single gift and sometimes even more through the ones that are less noticed. There are people in our church uh, that I could name who are not known to most people, but who many of us would say, you know what, if we could all do our ministries like they do, this church would be an unbelievable place. And it's not necessarily the preachers. <laughs> okay? And it's the same in your life too. Administer His grace however He gives you to administer it through gifts that He gives you. Now, when we come to uh, verse 11, we find that Peter shows us that our gifts come in various forms. They all come from Christ, but they're in various forms. And he breaks these down largely into two categories, speaking and serving. So if you took all the gifts that are in 1 Corinthians 12, all the gifts in Romans 12, uh, and you break them all out, what Peter is saying, they basically come down to two things. You either use your mouth or you use your hands and feet. So you're either speaking or serving. Now, when he, he says, here's how you minister God's grace in each of those forms. So, gentlemen, as you're thinking about loving the brotherhood, you're thinking about loving the brothers and sisters around you, if you use your mouth, what the Apostle Peter is saying, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, on behalf of God, we implore men to be reconciled. In other words, the, the apostle is saying, of course, he's an apostle. He's an organ of revelation. But it's true for anybody who speaks. On behalf of God, I implore you to be reconciled to Him and to one another. So when we speak, if you teach a Sunday school class or you teach a small group or if you're a preacher out there, what you do is you, you are speaking on behalf of God all the time. And you've got to give Him your lips as well as your heart and your mind, so that He speaks through you. And uh, that's the reason that I believe that when we're studying, when we're studying God's truth, the best way to study it is what we call expositionally. Go through the text. See what the text says. So often in churches in our day, people will get up, 
uh, wearing robes like I do on a Sunday morning and then just talk about the last thing in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times or some idea that popped in their head or some theme that they wanted to talk about or their hobby horse or give you their most recent idea, their most recent pious ideas on this political viewpoint or that political viewpoint. And I want to say, who gives a rip? Tell me what God says. And the only way you can be assured of that is that it comes from the text. You may say, you know, my preacher, well, he's a very experienced person. He's, he's, had, he's interviewed lots of people. He's counseled people. He has so much experience. He's been in many different churches, many different places. He's read so many books. He's just a very smart person. I'd like to know what he thinks. Well, good for you. And I'm sure he has some good things to say. But you know what? The role of someone who has the gift of communicating God's grace through speaking is to speak what God says. And I can have all kinds of experiences and draw all kinds of inferences, but what I've got to be sure I do is to say what he says in this text because that's the only way I know that for sure he said it. Because we've got lots of preachers, lots of teachers, lots of lay people who have a lot of quirky ideas and they seem to think they get it out of the Bible. And if they do because it's their idea. But we must be very careful to interpret the book in what it says itself. That's the reason that at Amen Bible Study now for 12 years, we just go through one book of the Bible after another, verse by verse. Is this because I have an unusual curiosity about the Bible? One book out of all the books in the world, I just seem to be more curious about this one than other ones? No, it's for this reason. Anybody who speaks must speak as though he speaks the very words of God. We've got to look at the text. And I need to convince you, first of all, that it seems this is what Peter was saying in his own day. And then we take what Peter was saying in his own day under the power of the Holy Spirit, and we say, what's the Spirit saying in our day? And then we have a way of comparing the situation in Peter's life to the situation in our life so that you have some assurance. Yes, indeed, that makes sense. What the Spirit was saying there, the Spirit's still saying now. And every time when I leave the pulpit, I go down the center aisle and I go down to say goodbye to people. The only thing I'm thinking when I leave church that day is, did I say what God said? I may not have said it beautifully. I may not have said it nicely. I may have put a few people to sleep. But, gentlemen, the main thing I want to know is, did I say what God has to say? That's the reason we deal with the Bible. So if you're teaching, just be sure that your teaching is always rooted in the Scriptures. And you're being taught by the Scriptures and people around you are being taught by you, your voice, your mouth, your lips, your tongue, as a steward of the grace of God that comes from the Scriptures. That's what Peter is saying. Let everyone who, who uses their influence this way to speak as the very words of God. Those of you who are on the vestry, those of you who are on the session, those of you who are on the Baptist deacon board, those of you who are on Sunday school teaching, all of you who use your voices, just be sure that it's always rooted in the sacred text. And then notice serving. He says, look, serve, if anyone serves, and the word here is the same word for deacon. If anyone deacons, he should do it with the strength God provides. So, gentlemen, if words come to us from God's word and we're communicating grace through communicating his word, same thing, if I use my hands and my feet to help with administration, to help with mercy, to help with serving in some way, in the church of Jesus Christ, I must do it with His strength, with a conscious awareness that I'm completely dependent upon Him. Instead of grumbling about all the hard work I do, it is the work that Jesus Christ is doing through me, and I gladly give it away because it's not my energy in the first place. It's His energy, says the Apostle Paul, that so powerfully works through me. 
And therefore, I'm not giving you something that belonged to me in the first place. I'm giving you something that He has given me to give to you. I serve with the energy and strength that He gives me. That's graciously administering, stewarding the love of God through our service. Now, there's a reason for all this. We've got a couple of minutes, and we'll, we'll only take a couple of minutes. The third major category, after we see that we live in the last day, and because of that we have obligations to God and neighbor, our goal is to glorify God. See what he says in verse 11. So that in all things God may be praised. This is the purpose of it all. The ultimate purpose of my speaking to you or your, uh, my purpose in serving you, your purpose in serving or speaking anywhere you go is not ultimately and finally only that the body of Christ is built up. That's a means to an end. The end is that Jesus Christ be praised. And that's the reason that it's important how we live in these last days by speaking and serving and loving one another deeply is that God may be praised. And notice four things quickly about this goal. We seek His glory by speaking His words. That's the reason we speak His words and not our own because we want Him glorified, not the speaker. If you've read a lot of books and have a lot of keen ideas and are a very pious person, well, fine. We'll walk away from your speech and say, you know, he's read a lot of books. He's really smart. He's a real pious person. But if we study the Word of God, we say, you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ is glorious and beautiful in His majesty and gracious towards sinners. And that's what we do when we speak His words. We glorify Him. Secondly, we seek His glory by depending upon Him. Rather than saying, aren't I strong? Aren't I capable? Aren't I smart? We say, you know, it's God working through me. And people pick that up from you. If there's a deference always to the one who gives the gifts and the strength for serving, we glorify God this way. And this is the reason we do it this way. Thirdly, we seek His glory in everything. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says here, he says that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Uh, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. All things, everything you do, everything you say, everything. God should be glorified in it. And fourthly and lastly, we seek His glory through Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, this is key. Peter says it intentionally. He says, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. There's no way to praise Him otherwise. Just think of it. How would you praise God apart from Jesus Christ? When God has given us His greatest gift of all, His only Son who comes to die for us on the cross, and to be raised from the dead, and to ascend into heaven with all majesty and power given to Him by God the Father. And we want to praise God by ignoring the Son? Impossible! You cannot glorify God unless you glorify His Son. And when you glorify His Son, you're glorifying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, be sure of it. All your service is through Jesus Christ. You're personally depending upon Him, the incarnate Son, who now with the Father has poured out the Spirit into your life. And you are glorifying God through Jesus Christ. This is what it means to live in the last days. We keep our minds clear and sober and realistic so that we're always men of prayer, calling down resources that His kingdom may be expanded here. And we are always loving one another deeply, continually from the heart by offering hospitality to one another without grumbling, by covering each other's sins, and by using our gifts to serve through Jesus Christ who has everlasting praise. Let us pray. Father, thank You so much for Your love that has covered all of our sins. 
And we pray that you'll enable us to live as men who believe in the second coming of Jesus by the way that we treat one another and by the way that we call upon you in prayer. Use us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.